We started a tradition last week of reading God's Word together. So in honor of God's Word, would you stand with me? Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's a, hymn bi there's a Bible in the pews in front of you. You can grab that and read along silently with me. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in his light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. Well, if you were paying attention, you saw that this verse is a verse within a verse within a verse. From chapter uh, verse 9 all the way through verse 12, even though the commentators put a semicolon in there, we'll unpack this together. So at first glance, we think, well, that's an interesting passage, but there is more. And we'll come back. By the way, this is not a lesson in Russian history, but there will be a history quiz if you can name all the Russian <laughs> leaders over the last hundred years. All right, so the first one, well, we're not going to do that. You can, come up, you can come up later and do that. Now, we're going to talk today about prayer. And I am so uh, love when kids pray because they're so innocent. You heard about the five-year-old preacher's daughter who noticed that her dad was always paused and bowing his head in a moment before starting his sermon. And one day she said, Daddy, why do you do that? And he said, well, well honey, uh, proud that his daughter was, was so observant of his messages, I'm asking the Lord to help me preach a good sermon. And she asked innocently, innocently so how come he doesn't? <laughs> or little Johnny and his family were having Sunday dinner at Grandma's house, and everyone's seated around the table, and the food's being served, and Johnny receives his place and starts eating right away. And they stop and Johnny, Johnny, don't do that. We've got to pray first, said his mommy. And, and, and he says to his mom, I don't need to pray. Well, of course you do, mom says. You, we always say a prayer before eating our house. Yeah, mom, that, that's at our house. But this is grandma's house, and she knows how to cook. <laughs> so, Okay, so we'll just keep right on going. Grab your outline here, and we're going to continue as we look at our prayer, my prayer for you. Have you ever wondered what are you going to pray for, and how should we pray? Well, Paul's going to give us a model of prayer right here in Colossians chapter 1. And if we look at what he asks for prayer and what we typically ask for prayer... 
there are widely different lists. Now, I'm going to give you my top five. If this is the Letterman show, here's the top five things that people pray for. Number one, people we don't know. Have you ever been in that prayer thing? Would you pray for my Aunt Matilda's cousin's neighbor's boyfriend's daughter's dog who has a, a bad toenail? You know, and sometimes we go, do I, what's the connection? I don't even know these people. Or how about this, number two, physical illness. It's amazing. We get into a prayer meeting and how often you'd think we're all just falling apart with everything that's going on. Now, I'm not minimizing that, but I don't see any of that in this text. Or thirdly, if it's a student, I can guarantee you what's on my list. I'm, I, it's already written here. I'll show it to you. The number one thing students pray for when they're in Bible study on Tuesday or Wednesday night is school, of course. Come on up here. Come on up just to see if, what did I have right there? Okay, there you go. Grades and school. And then if it's an adult, how many times are we praying about a job? Now, that's a really real request. And since some of you students may not realize why that's important, just think of being homeless. So it's good for daddy to have a job, all right? So that's a legitimate request uh, and for work and, and gainful employment. But the number five thing that every time I hear someone pray, almost always it's something that you want, something that's dear to you. I need that or I want that. Well, Paul has a very different approach to prayer in Colossians. And so let's look at his example. So look at First of all, Paul's prayer for the church, and I'm going to suggest that he prayed for these six things. That's not the only six things we should pray for, but in this context, there are six things that maybe we rarely pray for. So let's look at it together. First of all, it says, be filled with the knowledge of his will. Verse 9, be filled with the knowledge of his will. And the day, from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, does that mean literally he's praying 24 hours a day? I think he's committed to, you are regularly on my mind. Now, one of the things that I did this morning is I, I wanted to get all the band members' names because I want to be able to pray for them while they're leading worship. What's on your mind? And so God says in his word, he was praying for them. Now, he says to be filled, filled completely. And I won't get into all the, the, the verbiage here, but it's like filling up an orange juice or your favorite drink or your milk or your Diet Coke or your Pepsi Light or whatever. Filled up implies that this is similar to Ephesians 5.18. Not that you'll get more, but you will be filled. With what? The knowledge. This is, this is full knowledge. Remember I said there was some heresy going on? There were some teachers saying uh, that the, the teachers in Colossae we're promoting this deeper knowledge that somehow they had to have this deeper knowledge that only a few privileged people would have. And Paul says, no, no, no. You want the knowledge of his will. How many of you have ever said, I need to know God's will for my life? I think the big idea in being filled with this knowledge is to know his will. And his will is in God's word. In fact, it says very often, this is God's will concerning you. And then it gives you something. And so when we're asking to know God's will, well, I'll tell you what you got to do. Well, you got to know God's word. If you know God's word, you'll know God's will. And so maybe what we should be asking is, we need God's wisdom. How many of you through the course of a week say, I got two good choices here. 
Should I do this or should I do that? That's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously. And so we don't need to know God's will. We already know God's will. We just need to know God's word. Then we'll know his will. Now, the Bible warns us about lack of knowledge. Now, I tend to be saying, hey, you know, knowledge puffs up. And to be fair in the scriptures, knowledge is important. If you want to write, jot down a couple of these verses, you can refer to them later. For instance, Proverbs 19.2, it's not good for a person to be without knowledge. Isaiah 5.13, it is for lack of knowledge that Israel went into exile. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 14.20, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. So Proverbs 19.2, Isaiah 5.13, Hosea 4.6, 1 Corinthians 14.20. Knowledge is important, but knowledge of his will. And oftentimes, it's not a knowledge of his will that we struggle with. It's a knowledge of our will, which we want more. Is it not? We know what his will is. It's revealed in Scripture. And yet Jesus says his example is for us to follow. John 6, 38. He came to do the will of him that sent me. Luke twenty two forty two. 42. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine. And so often, it's not needing to know his will. We know what his will is. We just don't want to do his will. How many times have you talked to someone who's doing something that's clearly in violation of Scripture? Well, I'm praying about whether I should live with my girlfriend. Really? I don't think you need to pray about that. <laughs> it's pretty clear. Are you married? No. Well, make an honest woman of her. Let's meet on Friday. Let's get this thing done. You see, oftentimes, it's not a knowledge of his will that's a problem. It's the obedience to his will that's a problem. And so he uses these two words in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That word wisdom, Sophia, is the acquisition of truth. Understanding is the application of truth. Note the difference. He says, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, the acquisition of truth. It occurs 40 times just in this book alone, that one word. It's the comprehension of the truth, knowing it, but then understanding it, it's the application of that truth. One guy said it this way, prayer makes two great requests. It asks for the discernment of God's will and then the power to perform that will. It's not enough just to master theology. We've got to practice it. That's why Tuesday morning, 6 a.m., it's not just another men's Bible study. We want to apply the truth, not just hear the truth. James uh, says, don't just be what? Hearers of the word, but doers. And so the question is, how do we want to be filled with his will? Why do we want to be filled with his will? Number two, you see he, he goes a little deeper here. Number two, there's more. Yeltsin. Okay. Walk in the way that pleases God, verse 10. So you do this so that you'll walk in a way that pleases God, so as to walk in a manner worthy. And it's a, it's a Jewish metaphor that he's using here. There's a Hebrew word, halak, uh, and he's saying not to walk according to the oral traditions of the Jewish culture. Remember, many of these folks have come out of Judaism. Now, Paul prays for the churches all the time. This isn't a unique 
thing. If you look through the epistles, he prays for the Thessalonians, walk in a manner worthy of God. Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's a repetitive thing. He's always praying for his churches. Now, the problem is, it says we should walk. Look at it again. Walk in a way that pleases God. Now, you're going to hear me say this over and over again because it's so true in the Christian life. Write this down. This is the big idea. Don't be educated beyond your obedience. Don't be educated beyond your obedience. It says, walk in a manner. Now, I want to use a silly little illustration because I have some students in the front row. Let me just ask you a question. When you know that you have, let's pick the subject. Pick a subject. History. And there is a test on Friday. Tell me, young man, what should be the prescribed work order of your week starting on money? Do you study for that test? Of course not. (laughs) Would we start on Tuesday? No. Wednesday? A little, maybe. Only if mama reminds you to, all right? By the way, that's a whole other thing about parenting. Mama says, you've got to study. Dad says, just let the boy suffer the natural consequences of his behavior. <laughs> Mom says, no, he'll be living with us for the rest of our lives. <laughs> so that's why they want you to study. See, we know better, right? We know that we should be studying and not waiting, or term papers are even worse, to the last night to do that. By the way, it's not all your fault. It all started in first grade. When you did that plaster of Paris, make the country thing when first grade, and the, the map, and pretty soon it's like Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. Pretty soon mom's doing the whole thing, and, and the kid is directing you. No, mom, you need a little more green in that, right? You see, we need to walk according to the knowledge of what God's given us. Don't be educated beyond your obedience. Well, what does that look like? The next statement. Bearing fruit in every good work. You see, there's more. There's more. If he's stuck, come out. You see, I think that oftentimes we think, well, we'll just stop there. It gets a little deeper. Walk so that you'll bear, number three, bear fruit for God. The message says this making him proud as you walk in his orchard, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, the fruit scene is our good works. What's the proof of the work? There's got to be something in your life. So what is that fruit? We talked about this as a staff this week. The fruit could be Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Maybe it's qualities in your life. There's also fruit that comes because you said something to someone and they came to faith in Christ. God brings people to himself, but there on the, over on our, our picture here are, are people who have come to faith in Christ this past year. And people you're praying for to come in faith in Christ. Now the good news is if you are here and you're relatively new to this church, this is the greatest place on the planet, my, my own opinion, to be able to process what faith is. There's no secret handshake. There's no secret code. You can sit Take it in, listen, ask questions, come up and ask me. I'll say, I don't know, ask John. (laughs) Or maybe I might know. We'll talk to the elders. We'll get back to you. 
But you know what? I found that if you're open to hearing the word, wherever you're at in your journey, then there's going to be fruit that'll start coming out of your life. So John 15, 8 says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So my question is, what is the fruit in your life? My son, when he came back to faith in Christ and got on fire in the last three years, has got involved with a ministry called Global Noble Deeds. And it was a very simple concept. There's fruit going unharvested in your backyard that goes to waste. Would you let us come in your backyard, pick that fruit, we'll sweep, we'll clean up, we'll trim, we'll leave you some of it, but we're going to take 90% of it and then we're going to distribute it to homeless shelters, to rescue missions, to battered women's shelters, to the homeless sitting underneath bridges. And that's what he's been doing the last three years. He said there's something else that happens when you go out and a church in your Belinda has, a, has an orange grove and no one was tending it so these bunch of college kids said, hey, we'll pick the oranges for you and take care of it and they let them harvest all the oranges. People would stop and say, what are you doing? We're picking fruit. You want to join us? And people would stop and they'd pick fruit and as they're picking fruit, they'd say, why do you do this? Because Jesus loves you. Because we believe that maybe if we give you a little something to eat, you might be willing to hear the difference that Jesus has made in my life. So I love it. I don't know if what they are, but I'm calling those apples on the tree because it fits right here. The fruit of our ministry is up on that board, and I want to see that littered with red dots by the end of the year. So... We bear much fruit, so the next question is, well, what will that produce? What will, what will the results be? Well, there's more. What does he say? That you would increase in their knowledge of God. Verse 10, in increasing in the knowledge of God. So we've already talked about how important knowledge is, and specifically the knowledge in who God is. 1 Peter 2, 2, write this one down. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. Philippians 1.9, thus I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. We can never know enough about God. We can never know enough about God. Now, I'm not talking about just an intellectual knowledge. My wife's in a study on the names of God right now, and she's telling all this stuff in every name for God is an application that we could meditate on and go, wow, what a great God. We open with a song today, how great thou art. We have a huge God, but how often do we put him in a little box because our problem seems bigger? I'm not minimizing your problems, let me tell you. But here's the big idea of this text and this section. We don't want big heads, we want burning hearts. Not a big head filled with knowledge, knowledge puffs up. We want burning hearts. I want our hearts bursting with Jesus so that when people see your life, they say, why? Why are you like that? Someone said this, the true antidote to heresy is always a deeper and richer knowledge of the truth concerning Jesus Christ. There's one way, friends, that I know that you're going to have a deeper knowledge of the Word of God. And you can call it what you want. I call it a quiet time. Maybe devotions. Solo time. Whatever you need to do, you've got to get alone with this book 
every single day. You say, oh man, that seems so legalistic. Okay, I'll give you five out of seven then. The idea is to do something and start somewhere. Now, some of you are so disciplined, it's easy for you. I mean, you have your protein shake in the morning, you do your walk, you get into the Word, you praise Jesus, and you have, a, you have a, hey, one of those lunches where you're sharing your faith evangelistically, and then you come home, and you, know, you fix a, a four-course meal for your family, and then your children all so well-behaved, and they go to sleep perfectly, and you bask in the gloriousness of being a Christian as you sip your tea as the sun sets. <laughs> if that's your life, I want to come and find out how you did it. Because I'm telling you, it's a battle for us. Because we stay up too late, and then we don't want to get up in the morning, and then, oh, it's morning again. And... <clears throat> By the way, if you were in that first category, there's a phrase for you. We hate you. We hate you. No, we don't. But the bottom line is it takes hard work. It's not easy. So make it easy. Do something that works for you. I love worship music. The best time for me to pray are two different times when I have worship music in my ear and I'm walking. But the best time for me to pray is with this woman in the front row, my wife, Cheryl. Three and a half years ago, we started prayer walking in our neighborhood. And we don't do it every day, but on average, it's probably two to four times a week. And we have a 30-minute route, a 45-minute route, and an hour route. Now, here's the good news, wives. If you walk with your husbands and pray, here's the reality of it. Well, you'll pray about half the time. But the rest of the time, you'll be communicating. You'll be talking. You'll be talking with each other. And it goes from just the business of the day to things that are deep in your soul. And we've talked about all kinds of things. In fact, it's a little embarrassing because we're praying to Jesus and then as someone comes by and then we lower our voice and we talk. And then we pray to Jesus. I'm saying, you know what? I'm going to pray to Jesus. I don't care who sees us or what they think we're doing. You know, they walk to the other side like, whoa. <laughs> Find the way that prayer and communing with God works for you. Maybe it's prayer walking. Maybe it's alone. Um, one morning, I made the mistake of not bringing my keys and I got here early and I got here before everybody else. I'll tell you where an awesome place to have a quiet time is, is right out there. Hopefully the sprinklers aren't on, but right out there in those chairs. It's cool. The other night I was the last one to leave, Thursday night, and uh, I found out the rules around here. Last one leave gets to lock up. So. <laughs> I wondered why the elders were sprinting to their cars on Thursday night. See you, John. Don't forget to lock up. Actually, where's Caleb? In his defense, he could have played rock, paper, scissors, but I would have still stayed and locked up. So I, I, as I walked around, I thought, this is a cool thing I'm going to do. When I lock up on Thursday nights, every door I stopped, checked, I thought, who's in that room? And I prayed for all the children. When I got here, I prayed for the worship service. I'm not really sure what the prayer application is for the bathrooms, but we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but it wasn't, I used that time to pray as I walked around. In fact, I sat in my office afterwards, and I just was basking in just, what a great place this is. How fun it is to be here with you. 
that God is blessing your work here at ABF. So, he says, increase in your knowledge of God. Well, the next question is, well, why? Well, there's going to be a result. You see, there's more. There's more. To be strengthened with all power. To be strengthened with all power. Verse 11, that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, the problem is, this is the middle of a very long sentence. And if you're like me, I kind of got lost somewhere. And that's why each part is amplifying the previous statement. So you'll be strengthened with all power. How many of you need strength, literally, to get through a week? I think a lot of us need strength. You've got crazy lives. You're busy beyond belief. Now, some of the false teachers back then were saying that there was a power that came only through connecting with pagan gods. So this, if you didn't know this, it's kind of just slid in there. He's, he's shooting a bullet across the bow of these false teachers saying, hey, you don't need this special connecting power with a pagan god. You don't need that to protect you from evil spirits. Remember, there were animists and, and people who believed in evil spirits in kind of a weirdness kind of a way. Um, if we um, went to Haiti today, there would be witch doctors. The first time I was in Brazil back in the early 80s, I was speaking to a group of Wycliffe missionary kids. Parents all met for two weeks in one part of the country, and then all the missionary kids would meet. And we met up in, up in Belém, which is in the northeast part of, of Brazil on the Amazon River. And I remember hearing story after story from these kids about how their parents, when they go into the tribe, were up against these witch doctors and people who believed in animism and all kinds of craziness. And you would thought you would never would have believed it. it was still happening, and it was happening right then and there. And they told me stories about how their parents were supernaturally protected because later on in years, past, years would go on and the people in the tribe would say, yeah, we were plotting to kill you. And so we need to be strengthened with all power because he is the one who will protect you, who has this glorious might for all endurance and patience. His glorious might means his power in action. Interesting enough, 11 out of 12 times this word kratos is used in the New Testament, and it always, 11 out of 12 times, it refers to God and God alone. Someone said it this way, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toils, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. And if you're doing that kind of praying, if you're strengthened with his power, then it'll produce this endurance in your life, this steadfastness, this patience. And what will that produce? There's more. Number six, it'll produce this. Give joyful thanks to God. That's the result. Give joyful thanks to God. Now, if you're trying to follow where we're at, we're at this part in our notes right here. So give joyful thanks to God for two things, for what the Father did in verses 12 to 13 and for what the Son did in verse 14. So give joyful thanks to God for what the Father did. Look at verses 12 and 13. Give thanks to the Father, and he's done three specific things for you. He, and I, I'll tell you, I'll give you a key word for each of these. He's qualified us to share in the inheritance 
Look at that in your notes. He's delivered us from darkness, and he's transferred us to the Son's kingdom. So he requested us. He requested, then he rescued, and then he relocated. Let's come back. First of all, he requested to qualify to share in his inheritance. It's like you have the spiritual uh, shares in the New Life Stock Exchange, not the New York Stock Exchange. We have this inheritance. It's like, how many of you maybe had to refi your house? You, you get this loan approved for your house, and you qualify. Yay, you qualify. He's requested. Now, what is the inheritance? Now, I didn't give you enough room, uh, so you have to write it on the side here. What is your inheritance? Well, first, it's eternal life. 1 John 5.20, you get eternal life. That's part of the inheritance. Uh, actually, as believers, you get the whole earth. Seriously? Yeah, if you don't own a house, hang on. You get the whole earth eventually. Matthew 5.5, 5, right? You get all these promises in the scriptures. Check out Hebrews 6.12. And then he says the best news of this inheritance, it's eternal. Hebrews 9.15. And then what does he say about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that all he says is going to come true. He gives you the Holy Spirit. I feel pretty good. I don't know if you've ever gotten an inheritance. I got an inheritance many, many years ago in my early 20s. My dad was one of four sons and a family of eight kids, four daughters, four sons. And one of my uncles didn't have any kids. And... Uncle Pete and her name, we called her Aunt, it was Julia, but we called her Aunt Lloyd. I didn't know why you had Pete and Lloyd married to each other, but I was seven, eight, nine, I just went with it. So now I'm in my 20s, and Uncle Pete and Aunt Lloyd had passed away. One went before the other. And um, I remember they had asked me to do the funeral for both of them at different times. And after my Uncle Lloyd passed away, I'm sitting at the breakfast table out in the living room, and they're going to open and read the will. They weren't wealthy people, but they had a house and some other assets. And I thought, well, this is the family business for the brothers and sisters, so I went into the other room. And I'm reading this, and my other uncle reads, and all my earthly possessions, including my house, blah, 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 goes to John Lee Irwin and Daryl Hunt my cousin. Now, there must have been 50 cousins. Why did he choose the two of us? I don't know. My sister didn't get anything and all this. And so then I had to deal with all my cousins, and I received this inheritance. <laughs> Talk about pressure. Now, the cool thing about the inheritance we received, nobody feels guilty about it, and nobody compares because the good news is we all get it. It's not just limited to a few. Well, I'll tell you, with some of the money we had, one of the, it was a perfect timing because we were driving just a beat-up old car. And I remember when we, with some of that money, we bought a brand-new Dodge Caravan. We entered the soccer mom era. <laughs> and I remember feeling guilty because I bought this thing and... People at the church, oh, driving a pretty nice car. Oh, oh. And I, that's what I felt. And the cool news about this inheritance, you'll never feel guilty. You don't have to feel bad. He's lavishing this inheritance on you. And then he says he's going to rescue you. He rescued you from the darkness. 
He delivered us from darkness. We're out of Satan's jurisdiction and God's got us right here. And we, can, we know that Satan's domain is deceptive, but God is greater, 1 John 4, 4. And then he relocated us. Why, how? He transferred us to the Son's kingdom. The idea is he moves us. Now, I won't get into our eschatology here, but there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ, and someday, maybe another time, another decade, we'll talk about the book of Revelation, but... This is about a, a, a promise in the future. He's going to relocate us. Now, that's what God did, the Father. What does the Son do? Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. For what the Son did, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Two things the Son does for you. Number one, He does what? He's what you? Redeemed you, and He's forgiven you. Now, if those are words you're not familiar with, let me just give you redemption. Redemption is this great process where he's freeing us from the bond of sin. He's paid the ransom for it, and he's bought you back. That's a cool word. And then, even when we don't deserve it, he's forgiven you. Do you ever feel guilty? Don't answer that. We could all say there are things we feel guilt about. There are things we feel guilt about because we should. It's called conviction. There's sin in our life that we got to deal with. But how many times have you asked for forgiveness or something, you, you believe intellectually that God's forgiven you, but somehow in your heart you feel this weight, this heaviness? Let me illustrate what forgiveness is like. Come on up here. I'm sorry. You're, <laughs> at least you're, you didn't get splashed on today. <laughs> guilt... Would you come up here? Guilt is like this. How much do you weigh? Uh, 125. How much do you weigh? Like 110. Perfect. You're lighter. Can you hold him on your back? Uh, yeah. Go for it. Yeah. All right? This is what guilt is like. And you feel the weight of him on your back. And to do, you, no, you're going to hang on for quite a while here. All right? I can't. You can't, can you? Not for long. All right, so forgive him. All right, let it go. All right. Now, you can have a seat. But that's what guilt feels like. It's always, it's always weighing you down. And intellectually, you say, get rid of it. You, you believe that. And then we do this crazy thing, and we pick it back up, and we put it back on. And God says, you don't have to live that way. I've redeemed you. I've forgiven you. I'm firmly convinced there are some of you in this room that know intellectually that you're forgiven, but you've never experienced it. You don't know how to let go. And that's why Psalm 51 is so important for you to understand that once you ask for that forgiveness, it's gone. It's like what happened to a document I was working on on my computer. <laughs> Apparently, I did not save it. It was gone, never to be found again. That's what it's like to be forgiven. It's gone. And so now, I want to wrap up because this is a nice little exercise. There are six things that Paul prayed for, and we look at that. Nope, don't do that. Nope, don't do that. Nope, don't do that. Nope. And I don't want you to go like, oh, this is all the stuff I'm not doing. And so I want to paint a picture for you. And I just want to say it's my prayer for our church. A.J. Gordon said it this way, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't 
You can never do more than pray until you have prayed. Here's my prayer for our church. Six dreams. Number one, individually. You see the verse up there. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees the secret will reward you. My prayer for our church is there would be dozens of you who gather to pray by yourselves every day, communing with God, confessing sin, praising him, blessing him, asking for help, interceding for us as a church. Secondly, my prayers for marriages, 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in all understanding, showing honor to her as the woman, uh, as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you for the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm praying for dozens of married couples to pray with each other, to pray for their kids, to get on their knees praying for their families, for their loved ones, for the church, for the world. Thirdly, my prayers for families. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I dream of dozens of dads. I want 50 men to be here Tuesday morning because we're not just doing a Bible study. It's all about being a dad and a spiritual leader and how you can be a salt and light in your world. And we're going to start with you and your home in this semester. And I pray that, that every dad, every family, from the littlest to the oldest, would have a time of prayer. You say, do we have to do it every night after dinner? No, you don't even have to do it after dinner. You could do it at breakfast when we're all asleep. You could do it on Saturdays. You can do it whenever. But take the time to pray as a family. Fourthly, I pray for our small groups. James 5.16, that we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I dream of, I don't know how many we have, 10 small groups. I pray that we have 20 small groups. And every time you meet, there's a significant time of concerted prayer for one another, for healing, for reconciliation, for lost loved ones, for endurance, for sin, for addictions, for things that are impossible that only God can answer. And we come together and pray for our future pastor, for this church, for the vision, for the direction to make a difference in this community, in our small groups, every time you meet. And then I pray for our leadership. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I dream of every ABF group, the elders, the deacons, the deaconesses, the staff, that we just don't hurry into meetings and get our agenda done. And I'm kind of feeling guilty about this one for myself because I'm an agenda kind of guy. I like to have agendas. Maybe sometimes we throw out the agenda and all we do is pray. We reflect and we wait. And that we're not hurrying into human discussion, but we spend and linger time with the Lord in extended prayer. We have an elder board has decided to do something a little different this season. We're going to meet two times a month to do the business quote of the church. But the other two times, on those alternate Thursdays, we're meeting to just pray. We're going through a little book called The Unity Factor, and we're going to talk about our vision direction and praying for you by name. In fact, even as I'm saying these things, I want you to get this card out, because we can't pray for what we don't know. And I'd ask, if nothing else, if you'd fill this out for me, because then I just know who you are. And put your name, and every kid can do this, everybody. 
If you didn't get a bulletin, find one. If you have to do a family thing, do it by family. And let us pray for you. And if you want to be confidential, there's a box you can check. And I'd love for, by the end of this service, when we're done, no big fanfare, just come and just lay them here on, the, lay them on this table. Then I'm going to take these, and then this will help me and the staff and the elders pray for you. You say, but I'm embarrassed. It's really personal. Okay, then just email me. In fact, in your table talk this week, you can see that I put what are things you want prayer for today. If you don't want to do this, you can email me. I put my email in here, and I'll make sure that, or for those of you who don't do email, just hit me up on Facebook, okay? You'll find me, Colonel Sanders. have a little thing there. You can find me. All right? So our prayer is for not only leadership, and then I want to pray for worship. 1 Corinthians 14, if you give thanks with our spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. It's clear that our, the Bible teaches that we should pray out loud. It doesn't have to be silent prayer, even in the congregation. And so not just in solitude. I want sometimes when someone's praying, I want to hear someone say Amen. You say, amen, yeah, amen. That's not reserved for certain kind of churches in the south. It happens right here in Agura Hills. I pray of a, I'm praying for a prayer movement of prayer warriors that after services, it's just commonplace that people are being prayed for. We're not embarrassed. We believe that the power of God is going to be unleashed on this place. I can tell you I need prayer. I need it every single day. And I'm praying that some of you would join Sabrina. Sabrina, raise your hand. And some other people. And, and I want some people who will pray with me on Sunday mornings before I ever get here. Now, don't get all freaked out about the charismatics. I want God's anointing. That's a biblical term on my life. But more importantly... I want God's anointing on your life. That every Christian in this room says, I can declare God's glory and receive his power to do the unthinkable for the impossible for his glory. Do I hear an amen? amen. Uh, that was a good Baptist amen. Amen. <laughs> Little low-toned amen. You see, I want at worship to ultimately be the ultimate prayer to God. That because of our worship, everything we do would radically, deeply, joyfully, prayerfully, authentically wrapped and engaged in prayer during the, higher, the entire service. Worship isn't just what they do on the front end and then we do the preaching. Worship is from the moment you step out of your car. And in fact, the way some of you arrive at church, worship should start with confession by what happened in the car on your way here. And so when you step out of the car, you don't have to put on the plastic smile. You're saying, Jesus, thank you that I get to be a part of this church. This is the place to be on Sundays because God's power is going to be at work through you. Amen? Amen. And so our response is this. Is prayer my first response or is it my last resort? Is it only we do it because we're like, oh, I got to pray about this one finally. How about we start with prayer? How about we pray because it doesn't change God, it changes us, right? We pray not because we're going to change God's mind or opinion necessarily, because God changes us. 
A pastor friend from mine from Wooddale Church in Eden Prairie, Minnesota said it this way. His name's Leith Anderson. Prayer's first goal isn't to change God's mind to do things my way. It's to change me to do things God's way. It's like taking a car in for a wheel alignment. All the driving, turning, bumps, and potholes throw the wheels out of the lines, uh, out of alignment with the car's frame. The technicians don't bend the frame to match the wheels. They adjust the wheels to line up with the frame. Friends, that's what's true of us, isn't it? I need every day to be realigned with God. I'm not asking God to come my way. You see, ultimately, there's more. And there's more. And ultimately, at the core of who we are, we say, Jesus, I cannot do this apart from you. I can't do it. And so you take that prayer card and you start writing, even as we sing this last song. And I'm going to ask you, if you want to be a part of that prayer team, see Sabrina or just put on that card, I want to pray with you, Pastor, before the services. I hope we outgrow the prayer room. I hope there's 30, 40, 50 people who, hey, we're praying for today. Now you say, how do I apply this this week? Families, there's some questions to talk about. High school and junior high students, there's some questions to talk about today. But as we wrap up, I want to give you the biggest challenge I've given you today. It's called the prayer challenge. Every day, seven days, a different way to approach prayer. Monday, praying for yourself that God will reveal anything in you that needs changing. Tuesday, praying for the church, for revival, for spiritual awakening. Wednesday, for people who are far from God, who's someone that needs to find their way back to God, praying for them by name. Thursday, for the staff and elders, pray that we, at least one of them by name, one of us, that would presuppose that you know who we are, and then pray for us. You say, how would we do that? Why don't you pull one of the elders aside today and say, hey, how can I pray for you? Don't let them get to their car until several of you stop them and say, how can I pray for you? Friday, for my family. Pray for your spouse, for your kids. Hint, maybe go on a prayer walk together as a family. Saturday, I'm going to ask God to use us to make a difference in our world, in our school, for our jobs. And then Sunday, some of you are going to come early to pray for your future pastor. Next Sunday. Next Sunday. That's my dream. That's our prayer. And if that's the kind of prayer that we have in this place, then Jesus Christ is going to be lifted up. And this song that we're about to sing isn't just a song. It becomes the results, the goal, and the end game that God would be the God of this city, of this place, of this town, for this time, for you to make a difference. Amen? Amen. Let's sing. Bring these up. I'll drain them. You write, just bring them up here. Just set them down here. Dozens of you. Go for it. You know, as we think about praying together, let's lift our hands open again to the Lord. Just put them out there and say, Lord, I want to give this to you as I pray. Heavenly Father, our hands are outstretched because we want to receive from you all the blessings. We're so glad that your son redeemed us and forgave us. And we don't have wear the, the backpack of guilt on our shoulders. And now, Lord, we go out with conviction. 
with motivation to bear fruit this week as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, you are the God of this city. And so you are worthy of our praise. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, to the only wise God, be glory and power and dominion and majesty now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.